Chapter 7 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 7. Edward's Legislation, 1275-1290. The 13th century was above all things the age of the lawyer and the legislator. The revived study of the Roman law had been one of the greatest results of the intellectual renaissance of the 12th century. The enormous growth of the universities in the early part of the 13th century was in no small measure due to the zeal, ardour and success of their legal faculties. From Bologna there flowed all over Europe a great impulse towards a systematic and scientific study of the civil law of Rome. Side by side with the law of the civilians stood the rival legislative system of the canonists. The law of the church rivaled the law of the state. The jurisprudence of the popes stood side by side with the jurisprudence of the emperors. Moreover, the northern lawyers were inspired by their emulation of the civilians and canonists to look at the rude chaos of feudal custom with more critical eyes. They sought to give it more system and method, to elicit its leading principles and to coordinate its clashing rules into a harmonious body of doctrine worthy to put side by side with the more pretentious edifices of the civil and canon law. In this spirit, Henry de Bracton wrote the first systematic expedition of English law in the reign of Henry III. The judges and lawyers of the reign of Edward sought to put the principles of Bracton into practice. Edward himself strove with no small success to carry on the same great work by new legislation. He had for his chief guide and adviser the Chancellor, Robert Burnell. A series of great judges like Hengham and Britain supplied him with practical knowledge. A great Italian jurist, Francesco Accursi, son of the more famous Glossator of Bologna, gave him the technical skill and the grasp of legal principle which were the great marks of the trained civilian. For the times were but little favourable to the acceptance in free England of the Roman law. The most popular law book of the reign, which later generations have subscribed to Chief Justice Britain, Marks in this respect are going back as compared with Bracton. It is Bracton in substance, but Bracton rearranged, purged of his speculative aspect, and done into French that it might be more generally understood. It is very significant that the whole book is put into the mouth of King Edward himself, as if the whole law issued directly at the king's command. This alone shows that Edward was not regarded by his age as a merely passive instrument in the hands of his advisers. If he had not the originality to strike out new paths, he had at least the practical wisdom which absorbs and appropriates what is best in the common thoughts and actions of his age. Edward had an unerring eye for details and a great skill in ordering, arranging and working out a legal principle for its utmost consequences. Since Henry II had first systemized and arranged the legal system which grew out of the Norman conquest, there had been a century of rapid development fruitful in great and original ideas, but throwing out its results without order or method and with little care for clearness or consistency. English law had grown like a great wood where the trees stand so close together that none attain their proper proportions, and where a rich tangle of underwood blocks all paths and access. It was the work of Edward and his ministers to prune away this too luxuriant growth. The work was a task of ordering, of methodising, of arranging. Edward's age was, as Bishop Stubbs tells us, a period of definition. His aim was to group together and codify 
in such informal ways as the spirit of his age and country allowed, the legal system which had grown up in disorderly abundance in the previous generation. His well-known title of the English Justinian is not so absurd as it appears at first sight. He did not merely resemble Justinian in being a great legislator. Like the famous codifier of the Roman law, Edward stood at the end of a long period of legal development and sought to arrange and systemise what had gone before him. Some of his great laws are almost in form attempts at the systematic codification of various branches of feudal custom. The whole of his legislation is permeated by a spirit which is at the bottom essentially the same as the impulse which makes for codification. We shall therefore seek in vain for anything very new or revolutionary in Edward's legislation. We shall find a minute adaption of means to ends, a spirit of definition and classification, rather than any great originality or insight. But Edward did just what was wanted at the time, and his work became all the more important and lasting because of its narrow adaption to the needs and circumstances of his age. His work as a legislator puts him on a level with the greatest of the famous series of law-giving monarchs who adorned the 13th century. Neither St. Louis, nor Philip the Fair, nor Alfonso the Wise, nor even Emperor Frederick II attained a higher position as a legislator. Edward was greedy for power, and a constant object of his legislation was the exaltation of the royal prerogative. But he nearly always took a broad and comprehensive view of his authority, and thoroughly grasped the truth that the best interests of king and kingdom were identical. He wished to rule the state, but was willing to take his subjects into partnership with him, if they, in return, recognised his royal rights. In the same spirit, he ungrudgingly recognised the rights and immunities of the various orders of the state. St. Louis himself was not more careful than Edward in acknowledging the franchises of the baron, the clerk or the townsman, as they were understood by the general opinion of the age. But Edward, like St. Louis, was very careful to permit of no extension of feudal authority, and happier than his French uncle, was in a better position for enforcing the supremacy of the sovereign over all persons and all causes. Just as he refused to be bound by the bad Welsh laws, which went against his sense of justice, so he never brought himself to recognise any evil custom that trenched upon the inalienable and sovereign supremacy of the English crown. He would cooperate with the baronage in enforcing the feudal rights of the lords, but he never admitted that the feudal tenure of the land gave the vassal any political rights that enabled him to set up a little estate within the estate. Thoroughly feudal as was Edward's conception of law and society, he laboured successfully in removing the last traces of the political effects of the doctrines of feudal tenancy. He narrowly circumscribed every old right. He refused to recognise any new ones. The same spirit marks his ecclesiastical legislation. For with Edward, all his policies was a part of concerted whole, in which there was very little that was irregular or capricious. A survey of the chief monuments of the secular legislation of his reign will show us that the principles upon which Edward acted as a lawgiver. The details of his laws can be profitably studied by the legal antiquary, but the broad principles on which they were based profoundly affected not only his own times, but the whole subsequent course of English judicial history. Edward's real reign begins with his arrival in England in August 1274. This event put an end to the peaceful government of the Regency, which had acted in his name since his father's death. Bold legislation now succeeds the monotony of administrative routine. In 1275, Edward met his first general parliament, and published as a result of their joint labours 
the Statute of Westminster I. None of Edward's legislative acts better illustrate the position of the English Justinian. The whole ground of the law is covered in the long and comprehensive statute, which is almost a little code by itself. Next year saw the Statute de Bigamus and the Statute de Regiman, which instituted a special inquiry into the cases of trespass. Far more important was the Statute of Gloucester of 1278, which was an attempt to strictly define and regulate the special franchises of the feudal barons. Nothing was more vexing to the orderly mind of Edward than the way in which the great immunities of the feudal lords broke up the regularity and uniformity of the administration of justice. He regarded the feudal jurisdictions as dangerous to the authority of the crown and as obstacles to cheap, sure and uniform justice among the people. One of his first acts had been to send out commissioners to examine into the character and extent of the baronial immunities. Two large folios of the hundred rolls contained the results of this inquiry, which in its turn suggested the methods adopted by the Statute of Gloucester. Under this law, fresh royal commissions traversed the country, inquiring by what authority the lords exercised their exceptional powers. Many of these franchises were found to be based on no specific charter and to have no better warranty than ancient custom. But the very insecurity of their titles increased the anger of the baronage at the king's attack upon their vested rights. The great lords found a spokesman in the Earl of Warren, who, though a husband of one of Edward's Pontevin aunts and a strenuous upholder of the royal cause at Lewes, had no mind to see the ancient privileges of his order diminished. When the king's lawyers came with their writ of quo warranto, the earl refused to base his rights on papers and parchments. He bared a rusty sword and exclaimed, Here is my warrant. My ancestors came with William the Bastard, and won their lands with the sword. With my sword will I defend them against all usurpers. Such an attitude taught Edward to proceed more cautiously. He made no more direct attacks upon the political privileges of feudalism. He sought by indirect methods to compass an end that could hardly be procured openly. Every year was marked by its great law. In 1279, Edward issued the Statute of Mortmain, which, though aimed almost directly against the growth of ecclesiastical power, was but a part of Edward's general policy and stood in close relation to his feudal legislation. The king, as the ultimate lord of English soil, had certain interests that were opposed to those of his tenants, while his vassals, in their capacity of lords over their immense tenants, had in their turn certain common interests with Edwards as lords. Edward now sought to approach the points of common interest, and thus carry the great barons with him in a course which, though immediately equally advantageous to all lords alike, could not but prove in the long run to help forward the interests of the crown. The Statute of Mortmain sought to protect the rights of all lords of land, who were not seldom exposed to loss of their chances of relief, wardship, marriage, forfeiture, or a cheat, by the transference of land held under them from an individual holder, whose heirs might be minors, unmarried, traitors, or non-existent, to a perpetual ecclesiastical corporation that never died, that had perpetual succession, that could not commit treason, or fall into any of those feudal positions which gave to a lord the excuse for a fine or a forfeiture. The statute prohibited for the future grants of land to corporations whose dead hand never relaxed its grip. We shall see later how important this statute was in affecting the relations between Edward and the Church. It was no less important as the first step of the union of king and baronage to protect the interests of the feudal lords, which ultimately produced the statute of Quo Emptors. 
The Welsh War hardly relaxed the legislative activity of Edward. Amidst the trials and troubles of the settlement of Wales, Edward found time to issue in 1283 the Statute of Acton Burnell, which gave merchants an easier way of recovering their debts, and in 1284 the Statute of Rutland, which regulated the Royal Exchequer. But the return of Edward to England was marked by greater and more sweeping measures. The year of 1285 saw the passage of two of the most important laws of his reign, the Statute of Westminster II and the Statute of Winchester. The Statute of Westminster II has in its comprehensive character and wide survey of the whole field of legislative action no inconsiderable resemblance to the Statute of Westminster I. It re-enacted and amended many of the greatest laws of the reign. It revived old laws, cleared up difficulties, proposed important amendments. But important as many of its clauses were, they sink into end significance as compared with the famous first article, De Donis Condebriatus, which had a most momentous bearing on the whole future land law of England. There had been a long custom of lords making a grant of land to a vassal or tenant under some condition. For example, a man might grant a piece of land to another to be held by him and the heirs of his body. This was a conditional gift, but it conveyed a full estate in fee, simple to the recipient, except in so far as the succession after his death was limited by the words of the grant. But if the condition were fulfilled, the estate became in every respect like any other estate, like an estate in fee simple, which was at the complete disposal of the tenant for the time being. The grantee of an estate under condition, who had a son born to him, could, if he liked, sell the estate to someone else. Also, if he committed treason, his conditional estate was liable to forfeiture. Such a state of things was, however, directly contrary to the interests of the capital lords. It was their obvious interest to limit the scope of the grant as far as possible, so that the chances of the estate reverting to their hands might be increased. Here the interests of Edward, as the ultimate capital lord of the realm, were exactly the same of the capital lord of every manor. The result was the Statute de Donis, which provided that the rates of the heir of, an, of a conditional estate were not to be barred by the alienation of that estate by its previous tenant. The effect of this law was to create a new species of heritable estates, which were more limited in their scope than the estate in fee simple. They were called estates tail because they were something cut off, tally, from the fee. A further result was that the estates of this description were tied up much more strictly than other estates. The tenant was but a tenant for life and had no power of alienating or disposing of them in perpetuity. In a later age, the action of the judges broke down the severity of the rule, but not before the habit had grown up regarding an entail as the rule and alienation of the exception. One characteristic feature of the English landed system was thus established. There were large numbers of estates, so strictly tied up that the actual tenant of them had very limited power over them. It was thought a good thing to keep the property of a family as strictly as possible within the grasp of the family circle. But many evils finally resulted from the practice, evils that the reforming legislation of our own day has hardly swept away. The unhappy coincidence of interest between Edward and his barons brought more harm to the land than the temporary confusions that would have resulted from the complex of the king and his lords. The 30th article of the Statute of Westminster of 1285 worked a revolution in the English judicial system by instituting the justices of Nisi Primus, who were to traverse the country three times a year with a comprehensive commission that empowered them to hear nearly all sorts of civil suits. Fifteen years later, a further act empowered the same justices 
to transact criminal business by acting as justices of jail delivery and proved a precedent for the further acts of Edward's grandson which concentrated on the itinerant justices all the various powers of the modern justice of the Assize. The result was a great simplification and economy of judicial force, a great saving to the crown and a still greater relief to the people. Since the days of Henry II, it had been the custom to send round to the shires a constant swarm of royal justices, each with a very restricted commission. The counties were forced to entertain them, and they took good care that each visit should enrich the royal exchequer by a long series of fines and forfeitures. The result was that while the nation was burdened with their exactions, justice was often delayed for years, because it might so happen that the particular sort of court which was in request was only held at far distant periods. In consolidating and amalgamating the various judicial commissions, Edward added nothing fresh to the legal system of the country. Even in Bracton's time, some justices were empowered to heal all sorts of pleas, but Edward made the rule of what previously had been the exception. Moreover, Edward, by another act, divided the country into definite circuits and without any special legislation. His care for efficiency and zeal for definition led to the final and complete separation from each other of the three courts of common law, the King's Bench, Court of Common Pleas, and Court of the Exchequer. With separate staffs of judges, each presided over by a special chief judge and with special spheres of activity that were not yet evaded by the subtlety and pertinacity of a later generation of lawyers. Edward's reign also marked the establishment on a firm basis of the equitable jurisdiction of the Chancellor. Bunnell was thus both a chief minister and a great judge, and under him the Chancellor bade fair to become a successor to the Norman and Angevin Justicar, a sort of Prime Minister. The Statute of Winchester stands in strange contrast to the Statute of Westminster. While the latter is of the utmost importance in bearing on later times, the former goes back to the earliest institutions of the land. It is an attempt to revive and reorganise the ancient popular jurisdiction of the local courts. It strove to give new life to the Hundred Court, the feared, the Assize of Arms, and other ancient means of preserving peace and order by the action of the people themselves. It strove in particular to establish on the old lines a sufficient system of police. By the reinforcement of the military obligations which old English law had imposed on every freeman, it dealt another blow at the political importance of feudalism. It illustrates the conservative side of Edward's policy, his care and respect for the primitive custom of the land. It shows how he sought to define that custom and adapt it to new conditions. By it and other measures, Edward passed in review the jurisdiction of the lower courts as well as he had dealt with the jurisdiction of the higher sources of justice. Nor did the petty courts of the manor escape his attention. The practice of recording the acts of the manorial jurisdiction in court rolls seems to have first become universal during his reign. Thus Edward's fostering care gave firm consistency and definition to every branch of the judicial system. He was not only a legislator, but a judicial reformer of the first rank. The years succeeding 1285 were not fertile in legislation. Between 1286 and 1289, Edward and Burnell were absent abroad, and the regent, Edmund of Cornwall, was not the man to plan great schemes of lawmaking. No sooner was Edward back in England than another great law was passed, almost the last practical and constructive piece of lawmaking in the reign. This was the Statute of Westminster III, better known from the first two words of the Latin text as the Statute Coemptoris. This law, passed in 1290, stands side by side with the Statute de Donis in its importance for the history of the law of real property. 
While it marks, as regards the political aspects of feudalism, the secular counterpart of the Statute of Mortmain. Like to Donis, it provided for a case where the interests of the Crown and the Barons seemed at least to be identical. In 1285, King and Lords sought to protect their interests by prohibiting alienation altogether on one large class of estates. In 1290, they strove to regulate the manner of alienating those estates whose tenants were still free to dispose of them at will. Up to the passing of this Act, a man who held an estate in fee simple of a Lord was free to align it either in whole or in part. If he gave up the estate altogether, the new possessor simply stepped into his place and stood for the future as he had stood in his past, as regarded his relations with his overlord. But if a tenant of a lord wished to get rid of part of his estate, he could only do so by making the alienee his subtenant. He had, in short, to add a new link to the long chain of feudal dependence. The new purchaser was, in consequence, the undertenant of the alienor, and stood in no direct relation at all to the overlord of the Grand Tour. The result was often prejudicial to the interests of the overlords. Their rights over the land were diminished. The failure of the new owner's line would not give the overlord but his subtenant the benefit of his cheat. In the same way, he would not have the guardianship of the right of marriage. Moreover, it often happened that the grantor aligned so much of his land that the part remaining was not enough to adequately discharge the feudal duties of the fief. And the absence of direct relations between the overlord and the subtenant in the second degree made it easy to avoid discharging the obligations altogether. Hence the need, from the Lord's point of view, for new legislation. Here, the statute coemptorus, which provided that, in a case where a part of the estate was aligned, the alienee was not in the future to become the subtenant of the alienor, but to stand to the capital lord in exactly the same relation as the alienor. The result was to prohibit all further acts of subintudation and so to stereotype all existing feudal relations. Before long it was clear that a deadly blow had been given to the feudal principle itself. The constant creation of fresh links of feudal obligation was a necessary part of the vitality of the system. The number of tenants in chief soon became very much greater, now that each sale of land by an existing holder-in-chief of the crown created a fresh tenant in Kepity, holding his land as directly of the crown as the alienor himself. It was soon found that feudal obligation began gradually to be relaxed and finally sank out of sight altogether. In those cases, where military service was the rent payable from the state, some sort of feudal relation was kept up as long as the exigencies of local and border warfare still required, from time to time, the summons of feudal levies. But in the numerous cases of Socage tenure, where no rent was paid and no valuable service rendered, the empty obligation of fealty, which alone was left, soon fell into oblivion. The result was that it became a matter of no importance whether a man was a tenant-in-chief or a messe-tenant. Long before the Act of Charles II got rid of the very forms of military tenure, the legislation of Edward had affected its purpose. Tenure had no longer any political bearing. Even in its legal aspects, tenure was rapidly becoming a matter of archaeological rather than practical interest. It was a fitting conclusion to the great legislative work of Edward's reign, for the 17 years that remained of the great king's life, there was no other work to be done. The attempt on Scotland, the struggle with Philip the Fair, the constitutional conflict with his subjects were more than sufficient to occupy Edward's attention. Moreover, he had now lost his old helpers. The great generation of lawyers died gradually away and left no successors worthy to occupy their place. Burnell himself died in 1292, 
and the ministers of Edward's declining years had no share in the great and comprehensive schemes of law-giving, which have given its peculiar importance to his reign. End of chapter 7